This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to talk to you now for the next hour. Happy Easter for those of you who are not stuffing your face with chocolates like my team is, I think. <laughs> Speaking of which, in the studio, uh, Dr. Jeff, good morning. Good morning, Shane. How is, how is it with you on this festive-like uh, day? <laughs> that sounded like a dirty phone call. Um, <laughs> sitting next to him, unfortunately, Dr. Laura, how are you going? Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. what's going on? Hi, Dr. Okay? Shane. Yeah, yeah, very well, thank yeah, you. Yeah. And Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Everyone it- said, Dr. Laura, Dr. Lauren, know, I'm going to mix this up today. Well, if you just sort of blur it into a Laura... We, we both answer at the same time. <laughs> we're on the same mic. Like, we'll just both chime in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All righty. Sounds good. Now, we're going to mix the show up a bit today, folks. We have a guest we're going to speak to a little bit later from the European Space Agency, and we're going to do our news at the end of the show, which means our initial two guests are already in the studio. We have Professor David Tarlington, who is the head of the Department of Immunology and Pathology and an NHMRC Principal Research Fellow at Monash University. And from his group is Dr. Dimi Zodos, who is a Senior Research Fellow also from Monash Uni. Welcome, folks. Thank you. Welcome. Thank uh, sorry. you. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome as well. But, yeah, I guess here, yeah. Yeah. You know, it was in there. Chocolate. Totally calm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is dodgy stuff. Now, you, you've both come in because um, there's an important day coming up, and we actually do a show on this every single year, which is the Day of Immunology, which seems to – it's on the 29th of April, right? Is that right, Timmy? That's correct. It's a worldwide date, so yep. it's always the 29th of April. But it feels like there's a big lead-up these days. I remember, I remember the days when nothing was said. Until the day. Yeah. And now, what's the date today? It's like the 16th, right? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so I guess, a bit of a lead in. Yeah, yeah. Every year it's been getting bigger and bigger, especially in Melbourne. Um, yep. all, all the states actually now participate in Australia. And um, yeah, so we're just coming up with new ideas every year and, and growing the event, which is wonderful. So, for example, the art exhibition or the photography exhibition's already started. Mm. Um, so that's why we try and, you know, give people the most amount of time to get to all our events. So we spread them out a bit more. Now, before we enthuse people with some of the research you guys are doing mm-hmm. let's just talk about some of those events because what there, there's a big public lecture um yep. sold out or still it, it, there's still some spots available yep. um but it is uh filling very quickly and nearly gone so um as i said the um photography exhibition is on the move this year it's at mm-hmm. a few different locations okay. so its next location is at the monash monash immersive visualization platform also known as the cave on the 27th of april so mm-hmm. that's on the Thursday. And so you can go to our website and book in for a tour as well as looking at that um, exhibition and learning about your immune system. Um, and then we also have discovery tours happening um, over the next few weeks at, at six of our Melbourne's leading uh, medical research institutes. Okay. Yep. So in that list is Monash University, the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, the Burnett Institute um, and a number of others. You can find that on our website. And um, one of our events that's been growing really successfully every year is our vaccine cafe. Um, so that's happening on the 28th on the Friday. And basically you can come along, chat to some immunologists, learn about your immune system, um, have the flu shot um, if you like, and a free cup of coffee as well. And this year we've added on with the support of um, the city of Melbourne, we've got an infant clinic happening in the afternoon. So you can also book in for that and uh, come chat to some scientists and learn a bit more about vaccines as well. So as an adult, what sort of vaccines, I mean, there's the flu but there's the chickenpox vaccine as well and other things. I mean, should you be getting other ones as well? Tetanus? Uh, which ones do you you're going? There's a vaccination cafe. I want to get the whole load. What do I get? At, at the cafe, we're not we're not offering the full smorgasbord, oh. if you like. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you. Just the flu. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, the flu is one that has to be done annually yep. because of the, how the virus changes each year, so you have to make sure you're protected. Um, and also um, the reason why we introduced the infant um, cafe, if you've heard of whooping cough, mm, yeah. um, that's a, a problem that's coming up again in the population. And so pertussis is the vaccine um, mm -hmm. to protect against that one, and that's the one that the infant clinic is focusing on. Um, so they're the, the two that we're working on this year. So, um, yeah, being a cafe and not seeing people for a long time and not having a full medical history, we're not going to go through, you know, every possible vaccine yeah. you can have. Yeah. We're just trying to um, keep it simple and give people a chance to come along and even just chat about it. You don't even have to come mm. and get a vaccine. Yeah. Um, Good day, yeah. Polio in, uh, polio in the sugar lumps. Oh, do, do they still do that? With, no, with polio no. no, long gone. You're just yeah. showing your age now. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember that quite clearly. <laughs> I, I refuse to comment. <laughs> but I am a big fan of oral vaccines. I mean, there's a few of those still around, isn't there? There's, yeah. there's some going. Well, they, they do do the polio by oral vaccine, by oral vaccine uh, as, as an option still. Nothing like an oral vaccine, in my opinion. <laughs> I'm really interested in this photography exhibition as well. So what, what sort of art do you see in that? Yeah, so it's quite varied. So basically we open it up to all um, scientists. We send it out via a number of different channels and we ask them to send in anything they perceive as being artistic, obviously. And so we get lots of different things. So mostly um, it's sectioning, so cutting um, different organs and staining them in different ways. And, and commonly these days that's done by fluorescence microscopy and you get some really beautiful um, images from that. Um, but it's quite diverse. We can have um, lots of different things that scientists do um, mm. through different techniques. And yeah, lots of people like to print their images and, and print them and put them on the wall. They're quite beautiful. Yeah, it looks, it looks, I mean, some of it looks, looks absolutely fantastic. Now, now, David, let's talk a bit about the work going in on in your lab, because you work a lot on the issues of memory in, in the body's immune system and how that that operates and why it's important. Just give us a bit of a rundown of why the immune system's memory is so important for us to be able to use vaccines and so forth. So, well, exactly. What I was going to say, the main use is in, at least in Western worlds, in vaccinology. So when you're vaccinated, your immune system has not only a response to the vaccine, but that response will persist for decades in some mm -hmm. instances and protect you against re-exposure to that same organism, component of the organism or pathogen. So often you'll be exposed, not even under, undergo any kind of clinical reaction. The system will protect you at the point of uh, that, that exposure. Um, it's also important in, in terms of just everyday pathogens that you might meet, for example, to require, so you don't then require the introduction or the, uh, uh, the intervention of vaccines. You're sick once, remember the incidents, and, uh, and then are protected from that point onwards. Mm. And w when you when you say memory with these vaccines, is it the same for all things? Like, so, you know, I know there's some where you have to, I mean, the flu is different because we're talking about different strains each year, but there are some vaccines that it seems as though they wear off over time. I mean, what, what's going on there? Why do I have to get a booster shot for some vaccines? Yeah, that's certainly true. So to be protected, you need to have, well, so just to go back a little bit, most vaccines work by making uh, a component of the immune system called antibodies, mm -hmm. and it's necessary to maintain the concentration of those antibodies in your blood blood and throughout your fluids of your body at a certain amount to provide protection. So if that drops below that critical threshold, you'll no longer be protected, even though you would have been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And in almost all vaccines, there's a natural decline in the amount of antibody. And it can drop in some cases very rapidly, in others very slowly. So that's why the booster period differs between, say, 10 years or one or two years or three years or mm. whatever it might be. And why that happens is as yet uh, unknown. unknown. That's why we still exist and have yeah. a laboratory. Thank yeah. God there's still something we <laughs> yeah, focus on some a lot, of our work. <laughs> there, there's a lot there. Now, let's... Oh, 
Sorry, I just lost uh, my headphones just popped out for a second. Now, let's talk a bit about autoimmunity and that sort of scenario because yes. there's there's a lot going on in terms of the body with some people in particular who have autoimmune diseases where the immune system essentially is is attacking their own bodies. Yes. I mean, what starts that? Do we do we have an idea as yet as to why this begins? Because it doesn't start the day of birth, does it? Usually it's in adulthood. No, usually it is in adulthood or, or, or uh, adolescence. Um, there are very rare uh, conditions where it is almost immediate on birth, mm-hmm. and those are, if you like, single gene defects right. that cause that, and they're, as you said, extremely unusual. The most common form is that you have multiple genetic changes that might, or polymorphisms, if you like, that might predispose you to an autoimmune condition. Mm-hmm. It then might require some environmental impact or incident to occur, such as an infection or a component of diet or some, some other change, uh, and those two together might then trigger the autoimmune disease. But once it's triggered, it then, to a very large extent, just looks like any other immune response, and that is both both the, if you like, an avenue for treatment, but also the downside, because your immune system is very, very effective at dealing yeah. with what it perceives to be foreign things. And, and this is also, to some extent, where our work on memory comes in, because you remember the reaction against yourself, if you like, mm. and will continue to propagate that reaction for some time. So, so what's the possibility there of switching that off? I mean, actually taking control of the memory of our immune system. I mean, at the moment, as you say, we use it as an advantage in vaccines, but we don't control the memory. It just happens to be there as a benefit. But is it possible that we might be able to sort of switch that off so that someone who has acquired one of these autoimmune diseases, we could we could later say, hang on, forget the fact that you thought yeah. that, you know, the person's own body was the problem and, and just switch back to where you were before. Yeah, look, the immune system is a fantastic <laughs> Uh, system for intervening in that respect so that because it's also involved in a number of cancers, there are therapies for cancers which are now also mm. finding their way into treatments of autoimmune diseases and usually treatments for cancer are pretty like carpet bombing type things, just kill everything and, and, and yeah. let the system yeah. sorted out um, and some of those for example which might remove all of one type of lymphocyte because somewhere in that type of lymphocytes is a cancer, have found their way into, into autoimmune therapeutics where you just remove all of a particular cell type which might be contributing to the disease and in some cases, that works quite well. Um, the second aspect of that is that the tools for that, monoclonal antibodies, uh, another component of the immune system now trained and used to, to, to treat itself, are uh, really effective at blocking steps in the process of immune system mm-hmm. activation. So rheumatoid arthritis, for example, for many years now, people are treated with an antibody to uh, TNF, to tumor necrosis factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that therapy is an antibody which blocks this single molecule, but it's a signaler between all the components, and it basically just dampens the whole system down and stops the reaction against self by, if you like, short-circuiting the amplification process that usually uh, takes place. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Now, Jimmy, tell us, you're in the lab there. Yes. I mean, what's, speaking to, you know, potential people coming into this field, I mean, what, what's it like the day with immunologists in the, in the laboratory? Is it all beakers and test tubes and those little, what are they called, micro-pipettes? Micro, <laughs> micro, I don't know, I don't even know, I'm a physics guy. Yeah, what are they called? Epis. 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 Yeah, there we go. Yeah, they just look, you know, whenever you see a picture of this in the news, there's yeah. always someone holding those and there's a thousand little vials. Yeah. And, 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 and some plastic liquid nitrogen usually. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's always, but what, I mean, tell us about your day. What, what's it like there as an immunologist um, in the lab? Um, yeah, my day-to-day is quite varied these days. I, I still try and get into the lab, but as I've become more senior, I'm sort of supervising students and being uh, more responsible and independent with the research mm. I'm doing. Um, but, yeah, so it can be a bit administrative and trying to write uh, funding applications and grants as well as trying to write up our research and papers and also presenting that work yep. to, to share the work, uh, the, the findings that were found. Um, yeah, but also I, I love to get in the lab and actually do some experiments. <laughs> 
Yeah. And, and in terms of, I mean, do either of you sort of interact with patients at all or is that sort of a bit further afield? I mean, is there, is there that sort of connection? I mean, obviously the work you're doing has, you know, monstrous, amazing benefits potentially. I mean, is there an interaction with the patients or at least the patients Material, their, their samples and so on? Yeah, so definitely with patient material. So I'm not uh, trained as a physician and our interaction with patient samples comes through an, in, an intermediary who's mm. typically a physician who sees them in the clinics. There are a number of clinician researchers who have, if you like, that added benefit or whatever it might be in seeing patients and actually doing research in that same area. But for us, it's one step removed. Mm. Uh, so we work at a relatively basic level, if you like, of how does the system work and how do yep. the components interact with each other to create a particular outcome. And in some cases, as we were just saying, that outcome can be deleterious. Uh, and so we try to look at which of those steps we can intervene uh, um, and prevent the disease from yeah. happening. Now, I've got a couple of immunologists in the studio, so I thought I might as well ask this question while you're here. Uh-huh. Um, when, when it comes to pregnancy, there's foreign cells in the body. Why does the, the mother's immune system not just say, hey, get out of there, you're gone? What, I mean, what, what's going on? I mean, this is such a complex system. Do we know why that occurs? Yeah, yes. No, I mean, well, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, well, pregnant women are themselves immunosuppressed. Right. Um, yeah. So they do have to have that little bit of suppression, if you like, to tolerate this foreign foreign thing being in them. Um, so that's yeah. actually a good reason why other people should be vaccinated to protect people that are yeah. immunocompromised like that as well. Actually. Yeah. And it's also the case that a number of autoimmune diseases, the symptoms diminish during pregnancy, uh, is also part of that um, generalised suppression of the immune system. Yeah. So, so... Well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to recommend that people with autoimmune diseases go and get pregnant. <laughs> yeah, give you a bit of relief, but yeah, uh, yeah. I think the cost is pretty high. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> now, have, have you two in particular got anything planned big for um, diabetes immunology? Are you going to, you know, uh, well, is it I, just I, a big boost <laughs> session for immunologists? or <laughs> Not really. I'm personally also involved in, um, which I didn't mention earlier, the secondary school programs. Yeah, yeah, right. So we try and um, make sure that... Um, students in Melbourne and also out of Melbourne get access to uh, immunology lab-based workshops. Um, I don't know if you remember your school days, but an excursion and something practical makes um, far much more sense in terms of learning about mm. something. So we run that um, at the Gene Technology Access Centre in Parkville. So yep. we've got two days there, which are fully sold out. There'll be, in total, if I include the Ballarat site, we'll have about 300 students um, coming to those workshops, which is great and complements their VCE learning. Um, and also so we're running it um, in Ballarat at Federation Uni in May to outreach right. to our regional um, students as well. So uh, on the Friday, though, I'll be at the secondary school program in, in Parkville helping out there. Fantastic. And another kind of aspect of the Dave immunology, which is really exciting, is the opportunity to go on discovery tours around some of the mm. institutes, especially in the Parkville precincts, such as the Walter and Eliza Hall and the Doherty. And all the information, if anybody wants to sign up for that, is on the website, daveimmunology.org. Yep, and you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's fantastic. Look, it's great. I think um, we've been doing the Dave immunology guest thing for, I've run out of how many years now, and um, and it's just built. It's just so huge. And hearing that these school things are, are all sold out says to me, just put more on. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> Week of immunology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're going to extend it. This is year of immunology. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Well, you know, everyone's got a day these days. Yeah. Who cares? But not, be, many, not many people have got a month. That's you know, so. Yeah, every like second every second person's got a day. I reckon you, you, you guys, it's good that you're extending it, and I think um, there's so much to learn there. And as you say, whether it's autoimmune diseases, it's cancer, or it's just immunity in general. I mean, this this field is just over the last ten, fifteen years has just exploded in terms of importance. So, 
David, uh, Jimmy, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us and um, have a good time uh, leading up to the 29th and keep up the good work. Thank you Thank for having you. us. Thanks for having us. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We're speaking to Andrea Boyd. She's the Space Station Flight Operations Engineer at the European Space Agency in Germany. Andrea, how are you today? I'm good. Thank you for calling. Look, it's great to speak to you because, of course, you've come a long way. You're an Australian. You're working over in Germany now on this project. So give us a bit of a flavour of how you got from your hometown in Adelaide to being essentially the person talking to the International Space Station. Yeah, so always been fascinated by space and wanted to do something like that. Uh, I studied uh, engineering at, at uh, Adelaide University, studied mechatronic engineering, and uh, wanted to kind of jump over earlier if I could, but, you know, there's not... The, the education system in Europe and Australia is a bit different. Um, so it was on their side, they either said go and do like another thesis and another degree over in Europe or work for at least four or five years and then come over as a professional engineer. So I, um, I kept up all the space stuff and I worked as a control systems engineer and a mining engineer in Australia. I did FIFO mining for, for quite a while, uh, loved it. And, uh, and then when I had enough experience together with all the space volunteering I was still doing, I applied for uh, mission control for the space station. And I've, uh, I've been here a bit, bit more than five years now and love it. Yeah. Fantastic. Let's go back a little bit to, to your childhood because you have an interesting story about what got you into this stuff in the first place because there's, there's no space industry per se in Australia. So what, what got you involved? Uh, Star Trek Voyager on TV. It came out when I was in primary school and I thought it was great. I was Chief Engineer Torres and she was just making everything electrical and mechanical uh, work as her day job like it was no big deal. And I saw that and even though it was fiction, I was like, well, yeah, I can do that as well. That could be an actual job for me. Why not? Mm. And and how did you sort of go from there? Because uh, were there programs over there where you were living in Adelaide that you could do that sort of enhanced your, your science interactions in high school and so forth? Yeah, there was a South Australian space school in year 10. Um, and before that, uh, I went to the Syro Double Helix Science Club quite a lot since I was about mm-hmm. seven. Um, I saw that. My family's not super techie or into that stuff, but one of my brother's friends was, thankfully, and his parents would drive us there most weeks or I'd catch the bus. Um, and, and yeah, but Star Trek was the biggest one for me. So watching Star Trek Voyager um, was massive. And then finally in real life, I got to meet real life uh, space scientists and engineers um, at the South Australian Space School and even an astronaut, which was very cool. Fantastic. And do, did you ever get to uh, meet your pride and joy there from the TV show who played um, Blanda Torres in the show? I did, actually. She came to Germany about three or four years ago and uh, I got to meet her in real life. Um, she's Roxanne Dawson, she's such a cool person in real life as well. She stopped being an actress and turned into a director and reinvented herself and... Um, and yeah, and we got to meet up, and, uh, and I had my ESA badge, and we took a photo with it, and it was like closing the circle. It was amazingly surreal. It was one of the highlights of my life. Yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. Now let's talk about the work there at the European Space Agency, because I, I suppose what most people would would recognise from the movies and interactions they've had over the years is that um, Houston seems to be the point of of all information and everything in the world to do with the International Space Station. <laughs> But, but of course, there are times when Houston can't actually contact the space station. So, uh, I mean, talk us through how that works, because there's more than one location that communicates with the International Space Station. Yeah, indeed. So there's uh, 
uh, not like the movies. It's not just Houston. There's five uh, mission controls for the International Space Station. So you've got um, Houston, Huntsville, uh, Munich, Moscow, and Scuba. So Houston is mission control. Uh, Huntsville in the US is uh, all of their payload control. Mm-hmm. In Moscow and in Scuba, they have everything together for mission and, and payload control. In Europe, uh, it's a little bit different. We have mission control in Oberpfaffenhofen, which is close to Munich, and people say Munich for simplicity. Yep. And uh, and then we have our science control is split up between seven different countries and smaller centers in Europe. Uh, so that's how the space station mission control works. And I'm I'm actually mostly in Cologne, but nonetheless, if I'm in Cologne or in Oberpfaffenhofen, uh, when we talk to space, we still say Munich. Mm. Now, 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 talk us through what your day involves in terms of communicating with the the ISS. I mean, what 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 do you do when you get there? What sort of things? Yeah, so the busiest one's usually morning shift. That's the one that I'll take. So we'll come on console about the same time that the astronauts wake up, which is 6 GMT. So we run the whole space station on GMT. Uh, great for Europe. It's only one or two hours difference with uh, daylight saving. And we, we use GMT because uh, there's no daylight saving, so it always stays consistent. Uh, so, yeah, we'll come on console about the same time the astronauts wake up. I will um, talk, check in with the flight director of Europe. I will uh, talk to my counterparts um, in Europe as well if we've got anything for the morning meeting uh, with the astronauts. That happens every day. And uh, and I will talk to my counterparts at the other mission controls as well. And then we know exactly who's got what to say for the morning meeting. And it's all, you know, um, bang, 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 like straight after each other. So the astronauts aren't, aren't waiting at all. Um, it's all very efficient and pre-organized. And, uh, and the astronaut day starts around 7.30. There's no wake-up music or anything like that, like in the shuttle days. Um, the crew do whatever they want. We're not going to drag them out of bed at 6 a.m. or turn on lights. They do whatever they want as long as they're ready for this 7.30 kickoff meeting in the morning, and they call down to all of the uh, mission controls, um, Houston first, and then they'll jump to uh, whoever's next, and we've already pre-coordinated that. And then we run straight into science. So it's about 12-hour um back-to-back uh, science experiments for the entire day. Uh, there's a break in the middle for midday meal, and, of course, the crew has to do two hours of exercise uh, in between those as well, and uh, that's all in the schedule. So we'll be supporting experiments um, over space-to-grounds for, for the day uh, with the specialists, of course, on console as well, and, and yeah, and then hand over to the afternoon shift who does the same till about 7.30 p.m., and then you close it with an evening meeting, and uh, then the crew has time to wind down before they go to sleep. But, again, not their parents, so we're not going to turn off lights or anything. They manage their own time. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm trying to work out. We, we interviewed Terry Vertz uh, last year, of course, who, who you probably remember. Oh, he's great, yeah. was the yes. you know, Mr. Photographer for the ISS. And I'm just trying to work out when he had time to take all these photographs with such an intensive program. Yeah, well, after after this 7.30 evening meeting usually um, or on Sundays. So uh, the full-on science days, the 12-hour days, they're Monday to Friday. And then Saturday is more or less the same, except that instead of doing science experiments, um, you do cleaning like in a share house. And, uh, you know, one person has to do the kitchen, one has the bathrooms, one has the vacuuming, one has dusting, whatever. It rotates around um, everyone. And, uh, and then on Sunday they get an actual full day off, which includes a one-hour um, high definition video conference with their families. Mm. So on Sundays they can do do things like you know take photos a, a lot more than the other days. Yeah. Now you, you mentioned the science experiments. How many experiments are, are running at any one given time on the ISS? Uh, on average, around 200. We have four different science laboratories. So you've got the Russian Science Laboratory, the US Science Laboratory, the Japanese Science Lab, and the European Science Laboratory, Columbus, which is the one that we're responsible for in Munich. 
Mm. And do you, do you have to be across all, well, at least the, the experiments in the laboratory that you're responsible for, do you have to be across all of those? I have a broad overview of everything, but I'm not a technical specialist. So the experts at the science centres, um, they really, really know their payloads because you have to be individually certified, firstly, for every flight control position. And then if you're um, running a payload, you've got to be individually certified for that payload as well, um, which will involve extra simulations, even if you're already a certified flight controller for each new payload. Uh, so... I, for example, we'll, we'll run through the experiment um, and if the crew has the set points where crew will call down anyway, um, maybe because we're doing parallel ground commanding or something like that to make it more efficient um, or, yeah, or whatever comes up. But then, of course, the crew can call us with any questions. Astronauts are very smart people, so if they have a question, it's usually a very difficult one. Um, and so the, the astronaut will be asking a question and at the same time on the flight director loop, I can hear other voices and I'll hear the specialists say Busok here, Musk here, um, whatever here, like and I can hear the specialist is listening, so I listen to the question. The specialist gives a detailed answer at the same time the question is coming down, I listen to both and then I summarize the um, the specialist answer in one or two sentences of uh, astronaut language, so to speak, and put that back up. So if you hear a small gap, it's because um, I'm listening to the rest of the specialist answer, uh, not because there's any comms delay. We have real-time comms. Mm. Now, there, there must be there must be times when the astronauts just look at some of these experiments. I mean, I know they're well-trained, but some of these experiments are very detailed, and they're the sort of things that would take researchers down on Earth, you know, years to master. I mean, there, there are times yeah. when they just go, you know, what, you want me to do what? <laughs> it's, it's got to, there's got to be <laughs> difficulties there, presumably, when things well, don't go, go to plan. Done, yeah, no, our planning's done quite a lot in advance. So we um, we already know what experiments. We have a, big, a broad, like, two-year plan, and then we have quite a detailed one-year plan. Um, so a year, in, so we know for the six months that the astronauts are up there which experiments they're going to be working on, and during their last year of training, they will train on exactly those experiments as well. So they've already done the theory and they've already done a practical um, a full dry run of those experiments with right. the training model as well. So they're trained on the experiments they're going to run, um, yeah, completely. Mm. How many languages are spoken on the ISS? Uh Everything well, unofficially, many they want, but yeah. uh, the, no, the official two languages are English and Russian. So everybody has to speak both of those, and the rules are on space to ground. You're only allowed to communicate in English or Russian as well. And it's uh, we have a 24/7 interpreter that does live, um, yeah, uh, translations, uh, just like at the UN. So if mm -hmm. you don't understand uh, one of those languages, you can just hit a button and you can hear the translation live in your ear. And the interpreters are amazing their technical vocab is ridiculous uh, but the crew between themselves everybody has to speak english and russian completely to to be an astronaut um and they tend to um well like on earth when you've got friends that speak the same language as you you tend to code switch and mix it up so you just like yep. mishmash words in mid-sentence and whatever um is the fastest and best way to say things that's that's how the crew communicate in this mix of rushlish when they're on board um but even for example if the crew so Thomas Pisquet is there now, he speaks French, but, you know, he and I are not allowed to speak French on space to ground. Um, maybe small things like bonjour, merci beaucoup, or whatever, but you can't really say, <clears throat> sorry, you, you can't, yeah, you need to be in English or Russian, and that's because we have an open communication policy. So everybody um, at all of the mission controls uh, needs to be able to hear what everybody else is saying as well. Mm. Now, I mean, you're Australian, but one of the things that's um, interesting is that Australia doesn't have a space industry at this point in time, and yet we consume a lot of space products. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, um, it's a it's a bit of an interesting situation. So Australia is the one of two OECD countries that doesn't have a space agency. Mm. Uh, the other one is Iceland. I mean, even New Zealand has one, and they've got a thriving you know propulsion industry to go with it, and launch sites and everything as well. Um, the other the other OECD country is Iceland, but actually they passed a bipartisan motion in Parliament already to create one. So that so actually it's just Australia now. Wow. Uh, they yeah we um. We're funny because we're so, you know, we, we cover such a big amount of the Earth's landmass, um, you know, between Australia and the islands and the oceans and Antarctica. It's about one-sixth of the Earth, and that's really difficult to, to monitor um, unless you do it from from space using satellites. And I think that's a big misconception for Australia as well, that space is about astronauts or going to Mars or really expensive things, but actually it's about satellite utilisation. And uh, we use satellites in everyday life, and we don't even realise it. Um, if... if we didn't have satellite comms for a day. Um, Australian life would be very different if you consider your GPS in your phone, mm. all the weather reports you get every morning, the surf report if you want to go out to the beach or um, communication for the remote communities and the outback for mines, um, you know, for, uh, well, for, for everything. It's so integrated into everyday life. And, of course, you know, bushfire monitoring, environmental um, and disaster responses, um, you know, border control even there's there's so many applications that can only be done um from satellites and it's a really integrated part of australian life but we don't actually uh make any of our own and we don't have our own space agency we have 17 different departments and agencies that pay a ridiculous amount of money per year to buy satellite images and to you know buy satellite um, data from other countries and we're fully reliant on that uh, which is a bit absurd when we definitely have the talent and we have the Australian engineers uh, that would be able to do it in-house if there was a national coordination through an agency. Mm, it seems like a major opportunity that we're missing out on. Uh, are there advantages sort of looking at the other side of the coin in terms of Australia as a launch site? I mean, I can't imagine there's that many Southern Hemisphere launch sites available um, in total. Yeah, so there would be. Um, I mean, not at Woomera, though, for example. Mm. I most, most people sort of quote that, but the latitude is not great. Right. Um, and and the infrastructure is not there anymore. I used to work out that way, and it's um, it's definitely a defence site since since many years, since long before I was born even. Um, they There could be really good uh, chances to do it in the north of Australia. So close to the equator is always better for a launch site. Um, so, you know, near Darwin, uh, for example, would be an excellent launch site because you've also got the infrastructure nearby with, with Darwin um, and, uh, and with the ports. So that could be a possibility. But it's also economically not the greatest thing to, to base a space agency on. Mm. So, so it would be a good side thing, but it wouldn't be the prime. Like the prime um, value add from space is through satellite utilisation and uh, downstream data. Yep. Now, you've... Um you said you've been doing your current job there with the ISS for about five years, is that right? Yes, yes. I was um, a science specialist first in Belgium and uh, about three and a bit years ago I um, recertified, did all the exams again and uh, and I became Eurocom, which is the position that talks to the astronauts. Mm. Now, the ISS has got what, about seven years left in its life? I, I can't remember exactly how, how old it is now. Yes, yes, exactly, seven years. So, yeah, it started in 98 with the first yep. piece going up and then was built kind of like Lego with bits stuck together um, until 2011 when it was considered complete. Um, there are a couple more modules that are being uh, launched, um, but but it's uh, complete, fully functional, even has Wi-Fi and internet. Mm. Uh, and, um, and yeah, so the, the 
the end date is currently 2024, so seven more years. Yep. There is this theoretical possibility to extend it until 2028, um, but that's the engineering maximum, and we can't tell until close to the time, um, you know, when they have to do like a further analysis on the on the trusts and other pieces, for example, that have had the most stress. Yeah, so I was going to ask is the, the main reason there is not that the technology and that's just getting outdated, but it's just physically getting too old. It's, it's just... You know, it's an extreme environment in a sense. Uh, a combination of both, yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that, I mean, yeah, it is old. I mean, 98 until 2028 is a very long time. Mm. So currently everything's in place until 2024, the agreements. Um, 2028, uh, NASA's pushing for that. Um, nobody else has, uh, come on board with that yet. Russia just started, um, having discussions that maybe they would consider 2028 last week. Um, but it's all very, it's just talk. So, uh, yeah, officially we've got seven more years. Mm. And if, if the, the ISS is decommissioned at that point, is there a plan to build a, a replacement or is, is that the end of the sort of space station days? Uh, that'll be the end of the International Space Station days. So there's never been anything like the ISS and there's never going to be anything like it ever again. This is this amazing point in time. Um, for me, this was actually the dream project to work on because it also started getting built around, around the same time as I started watching Star Trek Voyages. So I was right. watching, you know, Star Trek and then I saw this real life thing being built and I'm like, right, that's what I've got to work on. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's even more amazing from the inside. I can also say that. Uh, but there's, yeah, it's, ne- we're not going to have something like this ever again. There was this magic moment in history where, um, everyone was building their own and went, oh, it's be cheaper and better if we do it together. And they did, uh, which is incredible. Um, like the international teamwork that we have is just, it's, it's amazing. It's so good. Um, and, you know, we all speak the same nerd acronym language, no matter what country we come from. And we can have great, firstly, we do great day-to-day operations. And then, you know, even outside of work, we can have great conversations as well. Um, so the, after the ISS, there's no post-ISS plan, firstly, um, for the international community. Uh, China was never allowed on the International Space Station because of Congress uh, in the US. So they started building their own after yep. doing a tech transfer program with Russia since 99, early 90s. Um, and they've started building their own station and that'll be finished by 2021, 2022. Um, the European astronauts have been learning uh, Mandarin for about five or six years. Mm. And uh, we've already booked a flight for one of the European crew to fly to the Chinese space station. So the cool thing about Europe is that we're friends with everybody and whoever has a station up there, we keep doing European science and, uh, and European astronauts can fly to whatever space station. Um, so we'll, we'll continue with that collaboration, of course, um, from early 2020s. Uh, Russia has plans to take off their section, which actually already the, the analysis says that it would last longer than the American section. So um, they would then attach extra modules and... Um, and have a, an individual space station as well. So current concrete plans is for a Russian and a Chinese separate space stations. Mm. Um, beyond that, nobody has specific plans. There's um, one of the former leaders of um, the NASA side of the ISS, interestingly, just started a private company um, called Axiom. So they're considering trying to purchase parts of the the American side of the ISS somehow and start their own thing. But there's uh, not, no great details on that yet or uh, any official arrangements. Mm. But so, yeah, it's just concrete stuff, Russian and American, uh, Russian and Chinese space stations, and beyond that, it's lots of talking, but no concrete plans. So from your perspective, have you started learning Mandarin? No, I haven't. <laughs> my Korean's okay, but no, my Mandarin is non-existent. Yeah, do, do, you, have a, do you have a plan career-wise beyond the, the seven or so years? Uh, do, where do you think you'll go next? 
Um, I don't know. So in ESA, we've got a lot of work as well going on, of course, for the moon base. Um, and that's, that's based out of the European Astronaut Centre where I am. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure. Like in seven years, it's, it's a long time. So in seven to 11 years, I will have to reevaluate close to the time. Um, if there's interesting projects that I'd like to stay on, I'd love to stay at the European Space Agency. Um, or if there's an Australian Space Agency or if there's something else, you know, who knows? I've, I can, I don't know, figure out close to the time, move back to Australia, move back to New York, mm. do something else. We'll see. Yeah. Maybe by Engineering's then, good like that. It's pretty versatile. Yeah, definitely. Maybe by then you can come back and lead the Australian Space Agency if we can get it kickstarted. So <laughs> might be a good way to go. <laughs> yeah, let's see how that goes. <laughs> Andrea, thanks so much for chatting to us today. It's great to, to hear that uh, one of our owners over there doing doing this work. And I'm sure you, you have busy days every day and, and I can hear the enjoyment in your voice. So uh, keep it up and uh, we'll no doubt talk again sometime in the future. Thanks very much. It was great to talk. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, we're going to run through some news. Now, Dr. Lauren, your your little guy Charlie's out in the green room with my son trying to be minded, but it's not working so well. So we'll do your news first. We thought, yeah, get me out of the studio. (laughs) Um, So I was reading yesterday in um, Science about a new idea for grant applications. So everyone listening to the show and everyone in the studio is aware of how uh, problematic it is trying to get grants for research. And you you spend a lot of time trying to get funding and it's a bit of a nightmare system. So there's obviously been a lot of discussion and a lot of ideas about what we could actually do instead. And so there's a group that's come up with an idea called Self-Organised Fund Allocation or SOFA. Mm-hmm. Which I kind of like that as well. It's, you know, rather than writing a grant, just Sit file on the sofa. Sofa. Exactly. <laughs> but it was developed by a computer scientist at Indiana University in Bloomington, uh, Johan Bollen. And the idea behind it is rather than having the normal grant allocation system where everyone writes a proposal, puts it in and it's peer reviewed, what they would do instead is actually give every researcher a fixed amount of money. So they would split up the research budgets, say that every single researcher in the US would get around $100,000. But the deal is, of that, there's a fixed percentage that you have to donate to another scientist. Mm-hmm. So you have to choose someone whose work you think is is deserving of that proportion of your grant money. Now, obviously, the concern with this is, well, wouldn't everyone just give it to their friends and mm-hmm. then it wouldn't mm-hmm. work? So they've actually done some uh, computer simulations to see if that would work. And they think that if the scientists allocated the money that they had to co-author, to people that uh, they cite. So there would be a blanket rule that you can't give it to your co-authors. But if they did have a preference for people that they cite, which probably most researchers would, it would still end up that the money would be allocated in a similar way to what the research um, grant bodies do anyway. So, so basically... Yeah. So no wasted time. No wasted time. Mm. No wasted time, much lower overhead costs. You're mm. not sitting around waiting for, you know, 10 months of the year to see what your grant will come back as. So it's quite an interesting idea and it is being trialled. So um, they're obviously they're doing a lot of computer simulations and research into the, the idea. But in the Netherlands, they've... Um, got approval to actually trial it in, in a small sample to see whether or not it's going to happen. Uh, the government has approved that trial, but there's actually still some other levels that need to be finalised before they can go ahead. Mm. But it would be much nicer than 
spending all Christmas writing a grant. Oh, look, I think there's some, there's some good merits in there. I'm going to kick you out so you can go and take care yeah, of your little go. guy. And we'll, we'll talk about this in your absence. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. See you in a few minutes. Um, it's a family program, folks. We invite the kids in. Now, it, it, is, it is fascinating, though, just how much time we, we waste on, on grants. And if that date is correct, it just says it really is wasted because if you end up with the same outcomes anyway, why bother? It's just something you have to put out of your mind. It's something that you tell people that are non-scientists and they will say, what, you spend four months of the year and that's all mm. you do is write, write grants mm. and you've got about 12% Chance. probability of getting yeah. any of those. Don't yeah, you feel just, a little demoralised? It just puts people off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we're not going to do that all the time. I think, uh, look, I, I, my suspicion is this stuff will evolve as it has. I mean, it's evolved into this state that we're in at the moment, which is quite bad, but it will evolve out of it as well because as, as generational change occurs in the grant panels and so forth and people realise that, you know, this is not the smartest way and we start using science as in evidence-based to work out what works best, if we actually apply science to the granting system, I think you'd find that you really need to reconstruct it into something completely new. Anyway, what else have we got? Uh, Dr. Laura, what do you got for us? Completely change of topic. And now I'm kind of thinking about it. I hope it doesn't cross come across like male bashing in any way. But um, I'm going to talk about... Uh, <laughs> we'll let you know. <laughs> now, now, we, we know. now we know. Now you're outnumbered. Now, um, now Lauren's oh, gone. No. Yeah. Where's, where's, where are the two Laurens? Um, I read a new article on the courtship of jumping spiders. Cool. Now, everybody loves jumping spiders. They are by far the they are the most adorable spider going around. These guys, there's 5,000 different species. They're just a few millimetres. And everybody may remember a couple of years ago, there were some really fantastic pictures coming out of Western Australia with the peacock jumping spiders. Mm. They're really, really fantastic looking. But um, what we know about jumping spiders is that the males to court females, they do this very elaborate dance. There's, very, there's a lot of memes on the internet of them singing to, you know, all the single ladies in YMCA. So they flap across their legs. They're very beautiful. Jeff is doing a very fantastic <laughs> yeah. impression in the studio. It's a shame that everybody can't see that. But they, I, I, I um, actually don't think it's a shame that they can't see it. <laughs> yeah, so they That's could, how I so they could laugh with us. What you said. But they, in, these spiders, they, they also sing and they vibrate their limbs together. Wow. And the singing is very, very important. The women do kill the, fi- the female. The, sorry, the women do k- kill the males if they don't like their dance and their song. Mm. And actually, if you prevent the men from from doing their vibration song, they are four times as likely to get eaten or cannibalized by the female. Now, this new study that came out from the University of Florida last week um, showed that these ma- the, ma- the strategy for courtship of the males is literally just to go for anything. So they cannot tell the difference bet- between females that are live or dead. They cannot tell the difference between females of different species. And so they watched all these different species of jumping spiders out in the wild, and these males would give it a go pretty much on the hour with <laughs> across species. Now, this doesn't work out well for the males because it just increases the likelihood of cannibalism mm. that they will get so what what they found is that um, they are now hypothesizing that these males, they can't tell females apart, which in the male's defense, the females do look pretty similar. They're all brown, whereas the males are gorgeous and colorful. Right. And, you know, and so um, the scientists are hypothesizing that the reasons why the males have these beautiful colors and, you know, they look very, very distinct, the different species, is so the females can make the decision while the males are still at a safe distance to reject them and walk away because the males just cannot tell what's going on. So good from afar, but far from good. Yes. Is that the phrase they use in jumpings, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I mean, I, the one thing I've always found interesting is I'm arachnophobic. Hate them. 
But not these guys. But not jumping spiders. They don't so bother beautiful. me at all. I don't no. know what it is. They, don't, they actually the don't. The fact that they're four millimeters. So. Yeah. That could. Well, I, I always wondered whether it was a size thing. You know, be above a certain size. The fact um, that they're dancing. You scared them, but maybe that's it. Yeah. They're dancing spiders. Dance. Cool yeah. No one can cool resist that. Anyway, I'm cool with them. You know, I, I don't have to deal with them in any bad way. Jeff, what do you got for us? Okay, uh, posing. I'd like to pose a question for you. How often have you been on the tram, been in your workplace, and you smell something that's supposed to be nice, a perfume or an air freshener, and it really gets up your nose? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Especially air fresheners. So this, especially in the workplace. Yes. So we've been basically. We, <laughs> Where do you work? We Here are right being now. exposed to toxins. So these are toxins. Mm. It's like a wake-up call. So Professor Anne Steinman from the who's a professor of civil engineering, and I love this title, Chair of Sustainable Cities within University of Melbourne. Um, she's got a very recent publication in which she surveyed um, Australians. She's previously surveyed uh, Americans, and they got the same results, that one-third, one in three of you out there, and including me, uh, they you, you feel like retching when you're, say, sat next to someone with strong perfume mm-hmm. or, or someone sped it in the bathroom. Uh, 10% of people... Um, won't go in public toilets because of the smell, uh, the so-called nice smell, and uh, 8% of people have actually taken a day off work because they've been affected adversely by by perfumes and air fresheners um, at work or in the home. And it's a huge amount. And she's been listing the number of chemicals that are in in these uh, uh, fragrances. And most importantly, uh, did you know that... Um, Perfumes, uh, shampoos, look on all your bottles. If it says fragrance, it, they do not have to reveal which chemicals are in the fragrance because they're, right? you know, patent protected. Mm. Yeah, right. And that, the list is pretty long and it includes some chemicals that are, that have been, um, uh, shown to be toxic by, a, by other means, by, oh, wow. by other means. And you've got something that was on the TV and, uh, trust me, I have a doctor, which is, uh, excellent, a UK TV series. Why can't we have something like that here? Um, uh, and they were, they were, they did a, a semi-scientific experiment of looking at levels of formaldehyde, which anybody's ever worked with, it's nasty stuff. It doesn't mm. smell, but limonene, which is a lemon scented, um, Fragrance, it's in all kinds of things it's, that's in lemons, but um, it, it combined with these other chemicals and combined with ozone forms formaldehyde in the house. So it's poisoning. It's, I think it's part of this. Have you heard of gray building syndrome? It's why I build it, why we like nature better and why our buildings are killing us. And one of the reasons is because of the spray that some of us, that some people use. Um, and the solutions. Um, are basically the great solutions. Open windows oh, yeah. and use things like vinegar um, and bicarb as 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 air freshness because she describes it as an epidemic and people have been getting shortness of breath, migraine, etc. Um, and even the so-called or even the organic products that you know are, do contain these these fragrances that contain natural fragrances. Chemicals are chemicals, you know, yeah. there's no, there's no yeah. good or bad. But it's one of the things we need to wake mm. up to. We need to start demanding to know what is in the fragrances that are in all our products. Say from, from fragrance, shampoos. not formaldehyde on the bottle. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it is, they, are, they <laughs> are literally making us sick. I thought I was one of the only people that this my wife who has asthma, um, also does this. She can't stand to be in a, 
a shop that sells um, scented candles. Yeah. And I didn't know that, that one third of people were like this. And it was saying that one article was saying, well, for economic reasons, it's a good reason not to have shops selling all these scented stuff because you're, you're missing out on one third of the people coming Massive in and, 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 and pay money. So it's one of these kind of wake up calls. So yep. Look at the labels and try mm. to uh, find out what's in, what's in these scents. Mm. Good call. Now, uh, last week I mentioned that uh, the Cassini spacecraft that's around Saturn is uh, in its last few months of activity. They're sending it into Saturn to make sure that it doesn't accidentally crash into any of the moons or the possible locations for life. And this week, as part of that process, they've started changing its orbit. And this week they managed to detect um, molecular hydrogen in one of the plumes from Enceladus, which is one of the, the... icy moons with a fluid um, beneath the surface ocean. And this was amazing because in the past they've tried to do this, but the orbit has had the craft going through these plumes too fast and Uh, they've never been able to do it. So already we're one week since I did the story on this last week and already they've got some amazing data back that's essentially saying, you know, so if you think molecular hydrogen basically on Earth comes often comes from these hydrothermal vents under the ocean and that's just, uh, you know, powerhouse of microbes and so forth living in that region and if the same environments exist on this moon of saturn Mm. there's a pretty good chance essentially all the food the molecular hydrogen which is what these microbes use is there and there's some numbers that came out in terms of how much of it was there and it's something like uh, you need about 10 parts per million for for these things to survive. And in the moon, what they've measured so far, it's about 4,000 parts per million. So smorgasbord. (laughs) Heaps of it. So, I mean, this is another reason, you know, why this sort of work is really important because we just don't know some of this stuff. And and just working out what these moons are made of. um, Did you say enchilada? Not enchilada, <laughs> enchiladas. All oh, right. But it sounds appetizing. Yeah. Um, sounds, in fact, it may, maybe if you said enchilada, Trump might send something there. And, <laughs> yeah. But this, I mean, this is really cool stuff. And, and, you know, NASA's just still getting a wealth of information out of this Cassini probe after wow. almost 20 years of activity. Um, they certainly do not make them like they, they used to. So. Anyway, uh, Dr. Jeff, thanks so much. Uh, Dr. Laura, good to have you, you in the house. Dr. Lauren, she's trying to escape, but she's not going to be able to do that because she left her car keys in the studio and she's just come in. Hey, Lauren. I tried to make an escape, then realized there's no keys. Yeah, no car keys. You're no. not going anywhere. Bye. Uh, have a great Sunday. Have a great Easter, folks, and we'll talk to you again next weekend. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org. Thank you.